It's Tuesday, February 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Was it a hate crime or a hoax? The twists and turns keep coming in the case of actor Jussie Smollett. While at first it seemed that he might be the victim of a racial, homophobic, and political attack, investigators are now looking into whether the Empire actor had a hand in planning it. The two people who reportedly carried out the attack are selling him out, saying he paid them to do it. My producer Miranda joins us for more. Next, good detective work, DNA, and a genealogy site are once again credited with helping to solve another cold case. Jerry Westrom was charged with a 1993 murder after police obtained his DNA through a napkin he used after eating a hot dog and then discarded. The DNA was matched through a genealogy site and police were able to track him down. Ryan Mack, reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for how this cold case was solved. Finally, a lot of people are waiting for former Vice President Joe Biden to decide if he will enter the 2020 race for president. While he has often been seen as a frontrunner in the Democratic field, new polls show he might not be that far ahead of the rest of the field. Elena Schneider, campaign reporter for Politico, joins us for this and what all the other Democratic hopefuls are looking for, a big viral moment. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. She said, sweetie, they're not going to find them. That just made me so angry. So they get to go free and go about their life and possibly attack someone else. And I'm here to left with the, left with the aftermath of this bull. That's not cool to me. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking about Jesse Smollett, the Empire actor who has alleged that he was a victim of a hate crime. The story has so many twists and turns, and the latest turn is that it seems that Jesse Smollett has switched from being a victim to possibly a suspect. He did a big interview with Robin Roberts from ABC News talking about the incident. Let's play a small clip of that, and then we're going to dissect the whole story. I'm pissed off. What is it that has you so angry? It's the attackers, but it's also the attacks. It's like, you know, at first it was a thing of like, listen, if I tell the truth, then that's it, because it's the truth. Then it became a thing of like, oh, how can you doubt that? Like, how do you, how do you not believe that? It's the truth. And then it became a thing of like, oh, it's not necessarily that you don't believe that this is the truth. You don't even want to see the truth. So it was interesting the way this started on January 29th. Smollett was allegedly attacked at 2 a.m. near his apartment in Chicago. He said he went to a subway to go get a sandwich and a salad or something. And that two guys were yelling at him. Hey, Empire. Hey, N-word. And homophobic slurs as well. And then that the two guys beat him up. He said that they said, uh, this is MAGA country. Things like that. Immediately, the first inclination is to always support the people that you know. Fellow actors that work with him on Empire. Friends and family. Politicians all over the place. The media really took it up and said, hey, you know, this is a crazy story that happened. But then things just didn't seem to add up. There was details that were missing or it didn't seem to make sense. The latest is that he might have helped orchestrate the whole thing. Miranda, what do we know about the latest developments in this case? Yeah, it's been about three weeks since Jesse Smollett came forward saying that he was the victim of a hate crime. And Chicago police said from the beginning that they were treating the incident as if it were a hate crime. But in the weeks since the story 
first came out, the narrative has taken a lot of twists and turns. It's changed a few times and it's gone from a tragedy to possible hoax. Right. And so there's lots of reports citing unnamed sources suggesting that the police are investigating whether or not Jesse Smollett actually helped orchestrate his own attack. Let's just dissect this from the beginning. So he got attacked on January 29th, but a week before that, he got a bizarre letter sent to him, like a ransom note you'd see in the movies with the cutout magazine letter right. saying like, you're going to die N word. And it had a crushed up white powdery substance. They determined that to later be just crunched up Tylenol. And so later that week, Chicago police announced in a tweet, they're seeking two persons of interest. Everyone released the statements. Even president Trump released a statement saying that this was like the lowest of low kind of a thing, releasing a statement in support of Jesse Smith. And then it all started to unravel. Unbeknownst to the public, Chicago police investigators had been tracking the two persons of interest they were able to catch on camera and uh, track them using rideshare apps. They tracked down their tech. They ended up being two Nigerian brothers. They are U.S. citizens. It's unclear who is who, but one of them was his former personal trainer, helped him get ready for a music video. One of them appeared as an extra on the show Empire. So they both had some type of a relationship with him before. And right around the time that the interview with Jesse Smollett aired with Robin Roberts, all this stuff was going on. They arrested the two brothers. They searched their house. They got a bunch of items from their magazines with pages torn out. They had the rope. They had receipt for the ropes that they knew where they had purchased it. They had the bleach there, shoes. They took away phones and things like that. So they had a lot of stuff. And basically, as you said, Miranda, they tracked the two brothers down from uh, either using a cab or rideshare. They tracked them on their way home to another vehicle. One of the sources says it was almost like a bad spy movie. And the brothers are spilling all the beans now. They're saying that he paid them off. They helped orchestrate it. And one of the big interesting things was this whole issue of a camera. Yes. And this is where police first initially started to think that something was up with this story was when they came to respond to the initial 911 call that he was like reluctant to make. Remember, a friend convinced him. To call the police. They showed up. He's still wearing the rope around his neck and he takes police out to the street where the attack happened and points at a surveillance camera and says, check that camera. That camera will have the fight. And this is important because in their interview with the police, those two brothers said they got in the car, all three of them together and drove around trying to find a camera that they can do this attack in front of. Yeah, they they scouted the the position. And the big unfortunate thing is that that camera was facing a different direction. Yeah. So it never caught whatever happened on tape, the assault, the alleged assault there. All this stuff is turned now on Jesse Smollett. Early on in the investigation, police officers said he was being treated as a victim. Reporters have now asked, is he now a suspect? And investigators are saying no comment to that. Things have shifted. The investigation has shifted based on what these two brothers are saying now. And Chicago police say they want to do a follow-up interview with Jesse Smollett. I think between him and his lawyers are saying, we're not going to do another interview right now. He's lawyered up. Such a weird case. We're still going to get some more out as the investigation continues. But this is just the turn that the Jesse Smollett has taken now. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Second degree murder charges against Jerry Arnold Westrom. Mr. Westrom brutally and cruelly killed a woman in her apartment. This is a cold hit case. DNA samples were sent to genealogists who helped us match them together. Joining us now is Ryan Mack, 
senior tech reporter for BuzzFeed News. Once again, the DNA helps catch another suspect. And once again, investigators used a genealogy website to help track them down. Very similar to the Golden State Killer case when they took down Joseph James D'Angelo. This time, it's a Minnesota man. His name is Jerry Westrom. He was charged with murder after police used a discarded napkin that he wiped his face with after eating a hot dog, and it tied him to a nearly 26-year-old case. What do we know about Jerry Westrom and how he was caught? So he's a uh, Minneapolis-area businessman. He's a father. Apparently, he likes to go to hockey games. And yeah, he was charged in this case. He, like you said, ate a hot dog at a hockey rink while he was being trailed by a few officers. He discarded the napkin in, a, in I guess, a receptacle, and they recovered it and matched that DNA to evidence found at a case from 1993. So this is a pretty big break in that case. Describe to us how the whole genealogy website comes into play. Like I said, uh, has shades of the Golden State Killer hunt also. They had this DNA from the crime scene that happened in the 90s where uh, Jeannie Childs was murdered. And they had this DNA. They take it to this genealogy site to see who they can match. And he was one of two people that came up. They had DNA from that scene I believe from a comforter, a towel, and some other articles of clothing or things in the room. And yeah, and basically what the Golden State Killer case has shown is that you can take DNA from a few decades ago and you can run it through these databases that people use to track their genealogy or family trees. And in this case, it came up with two potential suspects. Jerry Westrom happened to match some of the characteristics. For example, he was he lived in that area where the, the murder happened at the time and officers found enough probable cause and and ended up trailing him to this this hockey rink and then watching him eat this hot dog, I guess. (laughs) I I mean, we shouldn't laugh, but that's just kind of a a funny part of the case. Yeah. Yeah. You have to tail the guy until you can find that thing. You know, he wiped his face with it. It's going to have saliva or something on it. And then that's the DNA we can use after they arrested him. They got more DNA from him, and that was also a match for the DNA they found at the crime scene. They asked him, and he's like, I don't know why my DNA is there. And obviously, he's uh, you know not admitting any guilt. But this is an increasing trend that a lot of uh, officers are and investigators are using to try and catch people. I think they said nationwide since spring of 2018, more than 50 cold cases have been solved using public genealogy websites. Right. And I think that is a big part of the question here is a lot of people are going into these things, using them to track their family history or find that long lost relative. Little do they know that that could be, end up being used to implicate a relative later down the line. And so you, you get this kind of interesting privacy versus safety concern that's popping up with, with these issues and with these tests. And yeah, it remains to be seen how this will be regulated moving forward. I mean, there's even DNA sites that are working now with the FBI to solve a lot of these violent crimes. Right. My colleague Salvador Hernandez actually broke that story, and he confirmed with this company called Family Tree DNA that they were, in fact, cooperating with the FBI for this kind of stuff. And that was a little alarming. I mean, they're not notifying their users that they were doing this, but when the FBI came to them with uh, requests to kind of run their information through the databases, they were just cooperating offhand. Just the fascinating part about this is that 
these cases happen and things run dry. You know, they have the DNA, but they don't know how to match it. Or with this case of Jerry Westrom, no way to really connect him. And when the original case that happened in 1993, a neighbor had said, uh, oh, you know, I noticed water coming out from under the door or something like that. And, and mm -hmm. they went in and they found the body in the shower, water running. The woman, Jeannie Childs, was naked, only wearing socks. And she was stabbed multiple times. But then things kind of go cold and people forget about the case. And then just nothing really happens after that. These new genealogy sites and kind of getting near and then matching people up. I mean, it's just a boon for these investigators that have all these cold cases that never went anywhere. People have known that you can use DNA for years. I mean, it's been an investigative technique for years, but you need something to match it against. And I think that's where these, these databases come into play. These are things that people have started to use in the last five or so years with the hopes of trying to track their family history, like I said, or, or again, find a long lost relative. And so that's the, the kind of database that's being created to match against. And you're getting this interesting relationship between law enforcement and, and this new technology. Investigators said that they're sure that picking up that napkin out of the discarded food container is going to stand legal challenges. The courts usually say if somebody throws something away, it's fair game. And the investigators were also asked, are you guys going to continue using these genealogy sites to try to track down more people? And they're like, yeah, why, why wouldn't we? So you're going to start seeing a lot more of these types of stories and hopefully a lot of cases uh, being closed. So Ryan Mack, senior tech reporter for BuzzFeed News, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of people back home and here who want to know if you're going to offer that leadership as a presidential candidate in 2020. Have you actually reached a decision? Uh, no, I haven't reached a decision. Um, I'm in the process of doing that, and I will, in the near term, let uh, everyone know what that decision is. Joining us now is Elena Schneider, campaign reporter for Politico. Let's uh, take a look at the Democratic hopefuls for president. One of the big names that everybody's waiting to see if he's going to get in the race is former Vice President Joe Biden. All the surveys always have him way ahead of everybody, uh, you know, like 30 points and everybody comes in else like, you know, single digits or something like that. There's a couple of new polls out that show maybe he's might not be such a big front runner as we thought. It might just be a lot of name recognition. What do we know about these latest polls? Well, I think you put your finger on it when you said name recognition. So it's really, really early right now to determine who has sort of a, a lead in polling. And if you remember thinking back to 2016, 2012, all those primaries had moments where different candidates who didn't ultimately right. end up being the nominee were leading the polls. In Joe Biden's case, he's certainly somebody that Democrats are just very familiar with. And so I think name recognition does certainly factor into that. And so we've seen some interesting polling sort of dove a bit more into the numbers in terms of where actually people stood on him beyond just knowing him and being familiar with him. And they had him pegged between 9 and 12% support, as opposed to generally he's sort of hovered around the 30s. And that's a far less intimidating number, given the number of people who are running for president and who could look at a 9 or 12% and say, hey, look, I could get over that. So it's going to be really interesting to see how, whether those numbers sort of spike for 
for him once he if he ultimately decides to get into the race, or if this is a sign for him that that maybe he isn't able to to necessarily clear the field as quickly as he might have hoped. That's a big jump from thirty to nine to twelve percent, and a lot of it has to do with methodology and how these polls really work and how they're asking people these questions. And a lot of times, if it's on the phone, they're saying, "Hey, these are all the list of people." Obviously, maybe somebody brand new you don't really know. You just recognize the name. He was vice president for eight years. So you know him. He's kind of a, a, he's a household name. That's why somebody might say, oh, okay, I'll be inclined to vote for Joe Biden or something like that. And that's what it is. This is kind of a, it's so early on right now, the issues and the debates, all those things really haven't gotten started to the point where people can start making a decision. And that's where these nine to 12% numbers come from when they're given the chance to say, well, I'm undecided right now. That's where the numbers kind of start leveling out. And the person that you see there that's in a close second behind Joe Biden is Senator Kamala Harris. Right. She's somebody who has broken out in a big way in the last couple of weeks after launching out in Oakland. She's certainly seen by a lot of people in the Democratic primary operative sense. So consultants, people who work on this professionally see her as having had one of the best rollouts of all the campaigns so far. She was really able to come out of gate strong with thousands of people supporting her out in Oakland and then getting a lot of press coverage as she's kicked off sort of the early state tour. So she's somebody who I think that people were generally somewhat aware of. Right. She sort of is a bigger national name than, say, somebody like Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, but she's somebody who, who's been able to really bounce off of her opening with, with a pretty big sort of leap in, in, in the polls. And that's a good sign for her. And, and, and the big question now is, how do you fight that name recognition? How do you get your name? How do you get people to start seeing your message and possibly become a supporter And you had a great article there for Politico talking about how a lot of the 2020 hopefuls are hunting for big viral moments. And they're actually, you know, the campaigns are taping their candidates constantly just in that hope that something crazy will happen. They can repackage it, send it out to outlets, media outlets, raise money off of it, and then start creating a brand around the candidates. Viral moments. And and I'll take you back to one that I'm sure um, listeners will remember, which is Beto O'Rourke. Back in August, there was a video that was put together by Now This, which is one of the outlets that I focused on. It was an answer to a question about Colin Kaepernick kneeling protests at the NFL games and whether or not he supported it. And he gave this really human reaction to it that really eloquently described what his position was. And that got more than 20 million, nearly 20 million views, one single video um, video on Twitter. And that's something that took his underdog campaign out in Texas, where some people knew about him, but not a ton, and to really a national figure. He got invited onto the Ellen DeGeneres show. It was sort of a way for him to rocket launch his campaign to an entirely different stratosphere. And all of these other candidates are looking for similar moments. And there are a couple that we've seen have little blips. One is, you know, I mentioned her before, Amy Klobuchar had this really interesting exchange with then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings, where he basically turned the question around on her and asked her if she had ever blacked out before, and she sort of kept a cool head. And it was a very sort of revealing moment. All of this chatter about her running for president really kicked up around that moment. And another one was Michael Bennett just a couple weeks ago, who was ranting on the Senate floor about the 35-day federal shutdown. And once again, it was sliced together really well. It was put out on social media and it's the most watched C-SPAN clip ever. So I think all of that sort of all those numbers show you that there's a electorate that's really hungry for these kinds of moments. It's how we're really communicating these days. It's how people are getting their news is on their phones, on their social feeds as they're scrolling through. And so these candidates are just desperate to figure out a way to break in that way. It's right? the perfect way to break out make your name, have that one issue or something that people are really going to stand by you on. 
And obviously it's fun in bite-sized increments when you can see it on your social media. So I think it's very interesting that the campaigns are starting to record all this stuff all the time. And then, yeah, it's just a matter of finding that right little thing that's going to hit for you. And then hopefully, uh, you know, then you're a front runner. It'll be very interesting to see how these things play out in the upcoming campaign. Elena Schneider, campaign reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.